Our scripture reading this morning is, we're in the New Testament today, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Welcome, guys. Uh, My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse Church, and uh, we added a week to our series in uh, the Old Testament where we've been looking at the exile. Um... I wanted to, uh, to take a look at 1 Peter here and um, pull in some of the New Testament concepts into this greater idea of exile, um, because in the Old Testament, we have that whole story of exile that we just went through, um, and that story, that reality, that, that piece of Israel's history uh, so impacted the people um, that then saw Messiah come uh, that later we see that identity Uh, written into some of the the letters that are being addressed to the New Testament church, like Peter's letter here uh, in 1 Peter, where he actually refers to Christians, followers of Jesus, who had not experienced the Babylonian exile and were not even, in fact, Jewish. Peter actually calls them exiles in uh, uh, in this letter that he writes to them. And so um, I wanted to, to just... Help us to see that that greater story of exile that we've just finished going through uh, is deeply applicable to a New Testament people, uh, not just simply because it's in the greater Bible, but actually because it's pulled from uh, the Old Testament into the New Testament by the writers of uh, the scriptures. And so if you haven't been with us, we did walk through some of the prophets. Sorry, my thing's bothering me this morning. Um, Some of the prophets in the Old Testament who... Uh, showed what happened to Israel during uh, an exile period, which was the time after they had the whole kingdom established and everything, like they had kings like David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and all those guys. Um, Eventually, the disobedience of Israel led God to uh, execute his justice on Israel and send them into exile in captivity in Babylon. 
And so we walked through that process and we saw uh, the prophets speaking to Israel before the exile. Uh, we saw some of the history of the exile and their return back to Jerusalem after exile. Uh, and then we saw the prophet Haggai speaking to the people who had returned from exile um, and found themselves back in Jerusalem, but were surrounded still by, by, by people that were not faithful to God's covenant. They were, in fact, even still under the, the authority and the rulership of a different kingdom. Uh, and when they tried to rebuild the temple and reestablish God's worship in, in the community, there was just a tremendous amount of disappointment at that whole thing. Um, and so that's what we've spent the last, what, 10 weeks here looking at. Um, and Peter, who was uh, one of the followers of Jesus, who was called a disciple, he was actually one of the uh, three kind of inner, uh, Peter, James, and John, uh, kind of like the inner three of the greater 12. Uh, Peter became one of the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. Um, and so a lot of the Christians that he initially was teaching and training um, in, with the Old Testament scriptures, he was teaching and training a lot of Jewish Christians, people who had followed Jew Jewish ways, were Jewish by their heritage, uh, had grown up in that area, but now had seen that Christ indeed was the great fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he was Messiah. And so he was kind of Pastor Peter among all those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Well, then later in the book of Acts, he catches a vision and realizes that God has sent his good news gospel, not just to the Jewish people, but also to the Gentile people. And so Peter begins to then also share the gospel and teach um, Gentile Christians. Um, and his letters here that we have at the end of the old, or at the end of the New Testament are written to a large group in a geographical area known as Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, can't even think of the word, cyclical, that's not the right word, uh, but it's a letter that's supposed to cycle among the churches, um, and he, he writes this letter to those people, and they're all Gentiles, well, most of them, uh, the lion's share of them are Gentile Christians. These are people who have heard the good news of Jesus as it's spread to other countries, um, and they have put their faith in Christ, and Peter, at the writing of this letter, is actually in Rome, um, and uh, we know he's eventually going to die there. Um, but as he's in Rome, he hears about the persecution that has come to these churches in Asia Minor. And so he writes them a letter about being faithful in the midst of persecution and what it means to live out the Christian life uh, in the middle of a, a tumultuous time, uh, which in part is why he addresses them as exiles. So that's all to catch us up and to say why in the world did we finish a series in the Old Testament prophets with a text from 1 Peter. That's why we did. Um, sorry for twisting you all over the place. Uh, next week we're going to jump into um, Philippians. We're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Philippian church um, and uh, talking about the name that is above every name. Uh, and that name is Jesus Christ. So that's uh, what we're turning the page to. But let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump into this passage and uh, look at exile in application to us as New Testament people. So, Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. You're gracious to us to uh, call us your own, to give us a home in Jesus, and uh, to show us that this world that we live in, um, though in many ways we do feel at home here, uh, we understand in so much of our identity and so much of our, our hope and so much of our peace that, that truly we, we are not at home in this place. Um, that was true of, of, of your children that were led into exile in Babylon and then, then were allowed to come back home. They still never quite felt at home. And we see here through Peter's writing that that's true uh, of a New Testament church as well, as people who have found Christ as the glorious Savior of the world that have... Um, 
recognize that he indeed was God, that he came and died and rose, that we might be saved and brought to a whole new hope, a whole new life in Christ Jesus. Um, and yet still, even though those things are all true, that, that Christ has been triumphant over sin, that we now, because of faith in him, have a new family and a new life and a new identity, um, that even though those things are true, there is still a sense in which we are waiting for our home. We are still exiles um, who have somewhat of a home, but long for something so much more um, than what we have here on earth. So um, just pray that in our hearts that uh, Christ would be glorified this morning, that you would pull us into um, just a real recognition of our own state, uh, that we see uh, our own pursuits and, and the things that we expect out of this world, uh, that we would see them for what they are, and that more than all of this, that we would see the great salvation that God has worked for us. Uh, and that in Christ and in Christ alone, we truly can find our home. We can find our peace, um, even so much so that peace and grace are multiplied to us so that we might have joy. Uh, we love you, and we thank you for all these things. Pull us deep into the truth of Jesus this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Um, so for, um, what was it, five, six years, my wife and I lived in North Carolina, we lived in an area called the Triangle, uh, which is a weird name for an area. Um, Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill, kind of like Tampa, St. Pete, Clearwater, three bigger cities surrounded by other cities, kind of made up this area called the Triangle. And when we first moved there in 2006, 7, um, we didn't exactly know where our lives were going to end up, and so we kind of picked a middle-ish place. We were a little bit outside of Durham, kind of on the way to Raleigh, and just kind of really in a, in a non-specific, very general type of place um, and, and found ourselves a home in that place. And after a couple years of being there and, and connecting to a church and, and getting involved in the community and stuff, we realized more and more that our lives uh, were pulling us into Durham. Um, and so we actually moved just a few years, I think it was two, maybe three years after we first moved there, we moved to a different house in Durham, North Carolina. We got more into kind of the, the Durham-specific area. We found ourselves a home there. We were involved in a church that was planting a new church in Durham, and so we connected in that neighborhood better. My wife's job was in Durham, and so we did all the work to try to sell a house and find a house, which uh, we've got some realtors in the crowd. We know how painful that is. Some of you have just recently bought houses in the last little bit. You know how painful that is. So we went through this whole process. We saw, I don't even know, 60 houses. It was crazy. Like, we just went nuts. And uh, we finally found this house, and uh, we moved into the house in, um, I think it was uh, over Memorial Day uh, in 2009. And a uh, wonderful house, made ourselves at home there. My wife had, instead of a 30-minute commute to work, she suddenly had an eight-minute commute to work, which was absolutely beautiful. Um, and everything seemed really great. And so we enjoyed that. The church was there, uh, really connecting in the community and everything. And toward the end of the summer, it was just a little bit later than it is right now. It was in September, I believe. Uh, we went to the final home baseball game for the AAA Durham Bulls. Um, if you're a fan of the Rays, you know that they feed into the system here, and so we experienced the Durham Bulls baseball team there um, in Durham, North Carolina. We were sitting at the Tobacco Road uh, Brewery eating burgers and all the goodness that was there. I'm pretty sure there was sweet potato fries involved, um, overlooking the baseball game uh, right at the, uh, at the patio, which is a super great seat, just sitting there hanging out. And... Uh, there had been something in me that had been unsettling ever since the moment that we had moved into the new house. I had this 
deep ache in me that felt like it wasn't it, that felt like we weren't home. We had spent a lot of time and energy thinking we were going to find a long-term permanent place, went through all the work to sell, buy, and all that jazz, and yet after it was all done, I just went, oh, why doesn't it feel like home? Why doesn't it, why don't I feel like I'm going to be here till I croak? Like there's something deep in me that just feels unsettled. And finally, after a couple of months, I sat at this table with my wife over the baseball game and the wonderful food, and I said, hey, uh, I don't know if we found our home yet. And I just, you know, I just blurted it out, the thing that I hadn't said for months on end already. And she looks at me in her fabulous womanly wisdom and kind of almost laughs a bit at me and says, I know. I'm like, wait a minute, what do you mean you know? She's like, I've known. I'm like, you can't have known. Why, why? I haven't said anything. And she's like, I just knew. There's something about what's going on in our lives that I feel like this isn't our final place. And I was like, dang, man, I don't know what's going on. And so we didn't actually end up leaving Durham for three more years. And we lived in this house, loved this house, renovated some parts of this house, enjoyed the neighborhood, everything about it. But there was something in us that felt like we weren't truly at home. And I guess part of that's because we had to come to St. Pete, and part of it was some of what I'm going to talk about today in that there was a deep piece of identity that I was looking for in that home. There was a sense of established peace that I was expecting to find in that home because in the neighborhood we were in before, it felt like we were so in between, and I, we came to this place where we thought, oh, our real home, our real identity, our real community, our real neighborhood is going to be Durham. And then finally when we got there, it just didn't fill all of that hope, right? There was still a sense in which I wasn't quite yet at home. And so Peter writes this letter to a group of Gentile Christians who are in this area of Asia Minor. He names it. He says Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are Christian believers who have not been taken captive into that land, okay? These are Christian believers who have not been displaced from their real home and are now living in Bithynia or Cappadocia. These are not Jewish Christians who grew up around, in and around Jerusalem and Judea and maybe Samaria and Galilee and stuff and then got, you know, trucked up to Asia Minor. That's not the kind of people that Peter's talking about. The kind of people that Peter's talking about are people who are at their home. They're in their communities. Some of them maybe for generations have lived in that area, in that specific place, and yet Peter, in the beginning of this passage, he says, to those who are exiles. It seems like a strange little introduction. Why are you talking to people who are at their home and you're calling them exiles? They hadn't been pulled out of their home. They were in their home. This reference to them as exiles ties them deeply into the greater story of what God for all time had always done done among his people, that even though he had promised homes, even though he had said, I'll take you to a land, even though he had called people to go to particular places at particular time, still, in all those scenarios, the people of God were always, in a sense, without a home. In chapter 1, verse 17 of 1 Peter, he also calls their life in Asia Minor the time of their exile. 
And he refers to them in chapter 2, verse 11, as sojourners and as exiles. This isn't Peter's way of saying you're not going to live there very long. This isn't Peter's way of saying don't get comfortable there. This isn't Peter's way of saying don't build a house, don't find a job, don't get married, don't have a family. That's not what Peter's saying. What Peter's saying is that no matter how at home you truly are, you're actually still really exiles. One commentator just simply stated very clearly that Peter's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking here in a spiritual sense about the fact that even though these Christians are at home, they're not truly at home. In the rest of this passage, verse 2 here, um, of this opening, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This is a tremendously rich theological glance at what it means to belong to God because of his work of salvation. We talked about this last week. That the exodus that Haggai makes a mention of when he talks about chariots being toppled over and the enemies destroying themselves, that exodus was the first picture for us in the scriptures of God's salvation. It's actually the first place in the Bible there in the exodus story that the word salvation is, is used. And that story helps us to see who did the work of salvation, right? The Israelites who were up against the Red Sea with the armies of Pharaoh charging down, what did Moses tell them to do? Sit there and watch, and God will save you, is what he said. It was all God's doing. God stopped the army with the pillar. God spread the waters with his breath. The people walked across on dry land, and then the waters caved in on Pharaoh and his chariots. It was God's work of salvation. So here we see, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, in obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This is a glorious Trinitarian description of God's work of salvation, the Father involved the Son involved, the Spirit involved, that God has moved on our behalf to do the work of salvation and that it has, been, it has been His hand that has done the work. According to His knowledge before all time, according to the actual obedience of Jesus Christ to die in our place and to rise from dead for our resurrection, for the sprinkling of blood which cleanses us from our sins and for the application of the work of God to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The work of salvation is a work of God, and it is ours because it is his gift to us. It is not our gift to him. God brings it. He does the work. Jared Wilson says the Father purposes the saving work for those whom he foreknows. The Son accomplishes the work by his blood, and the Spirit applies the work to the sinners, and we reap the benefits. We stand in awe of the work that God has done. It's all ours as a gift to be received by faith. Like Moses said to the people at the Red Sea, I say to you, stand and watch the work of salvation. Be in awe of God's love and grace toward you, a sinner, who before you even acknowledged him, he was on a cross with your thought, with your heart, with your life in his thoughts. This is the great work of salvation. Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Not a little bit of grace, not a little bit of peace, but a multiplication of grace and peace. In this salvation, this work of God in our life, we will have a lifetime of experiencing God's grace and God's mercy and God's peace. 
That is what it means to walk in salvation, is to continually see his grace as it's multiplied to us, as his peace is multiplied to us, and an abiding, enduring, abundant, increasing amount of grace and peace. And yet, that multiplied grace and peace is still being addressed and being told it belongs to a people who do not feel at home where they are. So we see by the way that Peter addresses these Christians that they are simultaneously at home in God's salvation and in exile in the land that they live. And this is the reality for us as followers of Christ, that we find ourselves at home in Christ and we find ourselves homeless in the world. And yet, by the end of the passage, the exceedingly great joy that is to be rejoiced in is that we do have that home in Christ, no matter what our state of homelessness is, because it's varied, is it not? I love that Peter opens this by assuring the people that God has saved them, that Christ has done the work, that the Spirit is alive working in them, that even though they face troubles, even though they face hardships, even though they're starting to wrestle with persecution, Right? which as Gentiles they hadn't experienced, but now as Gentile Christians they are experiencing this whole conundrum of, wait a minute, I thought I get grace. Wait a minute, I thought I'm God's by his hand. Wait a minute, I thought that I'd been promised peace. Now I'm risking my life? Now I'm losing my friends? Now I'm possibly going to lose my home or my possessions, there was a shakiness that was starting to settle in among these people. And Peter asserts to them, listen, God has chosen, God has worked, God has given you salvation. May grace and peace be multiplied to you even in this strange land that you find is your home. Peter moves on from there in verse 3. We'll read through verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter just erupts into this song of praise basically at the onset of his letter he addresses the people and then he just starts to praise God why does he start to praise God he says because of this great work he's done he goes all the way he goes right back to this great work of salvation God is worthy of praise because of this great mercy that he has shown he is worthy of praise because of this salvation that he has given because he has caused us to be born again and it's beautiful what he says about this salvation it is an inheritance that is what imperishable undefiled and unfading. He says, this is what is yours as followers of Jesus Christ because of God's work of salvation, which I've already talked about in the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because of that work, there is an inheritance and it is these three things. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And listen, is this not exactly what we look for when we're looking for home here on earth? when we're looking to find the peace of a home here on earth. We are looking for that which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's what our souls are longing for. 
Everything that we chase after, we want it to be that. We want it to never disappear. We want it to never corrupt. We want it to ever abide in the beautiful way that we first envisioned it. I wanted that new home in Durham to be everything for me. To give me that sense of peace. I'm home. I've arrived at last. And it could not do it. I wanted this from the temporal thing. I wanted some great imperishable reality. And the fact is, is that we long for this reality. We talked about it in C.S. Lewis's quote that we often look back at a nice time in our lives or a, a picturesque time in our lives and we think, oh, if I could get back to that, then I would feel at home. Or maybe that's a future reality for you. You think, if I have that human or if I have that wage or if I have that job or if I have that home, that's when I'll abide in peace. That's when I'll be able to at last rest. We're always on the search for the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You're looking for it in your, in your, uh, your relationships. You want it to be undefiled. You don't want the friction, right? You want it to be enduring. You want it to, to if you're newly married, you want the, the honeymoon stage to last forever, right? It's, it's, of course, that's what we want. That's what we long for. If you're oldly married, you're looking back on those days, wondering how to get them back because we've always longed for something imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And listen, we've been given it in Christ, and we cannot find it anywhere else. You will not be at peace, no matter what you find in this world, until you have the peace of Jesus. Until you have the peace of Jesus. And even then, there will always be this sense of, man, where do I belong? Where do I belong? I don't feel at home even in my home. That's why for these Christians in Asia Minor, they were at home. But Peter was saying, you're not going to find your home there. Verse 5 is encouraging in this space of feeling like we haven't found our home because he says, by God's power, we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's Peter's way of saying, the home that is coming, God will get you there. The home that you're really longing for, it's going to be delivered to you. That final deep place of peace, rest, grace that is deep in your soul that you're longing for, God, by his power, is going to hold you and guard you by faith for that great salvation. Peter says it, or Paul says it another way in Philippians. He says that God will finish the work that he started in us. And so we come to this tenacious moment where we go, okay, well then, what do I do here at home? Right? If, if I'm home but I'm not going to feel at home, then how in the world am I to live in this? Peter moves on, verse 8 and 9, skipping over a few. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Uh, I'm sorry, but I want to kind of ruin something for you today, hopefully for the rest of your life. Uh, there's this, you know, this cliche statement, home is where the heart is, right? Your grandma probably had it on the board somewhere. 
Now we probably like write it in chalk and like differing fonts, right? Because we're way cooler than grandma. Um, I hope that whenever you see that phrase or you think of that phrase that something in you kind of betrays you and you begin to think that home is actually something that you cannot see. Just like Peter says here in verse 8, we've not seen him, but we love him. That home isn't where my heart is, but home is actually unseen yet. I can't see it. My home, my true home, is my home by faith. And that I will, again, not have a sense of home or a peace until I have that peace in my heart. And so this is the last message in this series about the far-off country. And it's fitting to end with this application for ourselves that says, okay, like Israel, who was brought into captivity and then brought back, they thought they were home, but they're not home. Like these Gentile Christians who were at their home, the gospel had transformed their heart. Christ had come and saved them, and they responded in worship to that, but yet still they were not even at their home. I want to just dive into this sense in which we are still in a search for a home. And listen, there's, 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 a, there's a very good chance Right? Especially because I'm standing in the middle of one of the most prosperous nations that's ever existed on the planet. Well, I'm standing at like the bottom of it. But like one of the most prosperous nations that's ever existed on the face of the planet. Uh, right? One of the most peaceful uh, times that the world is, has ever known. I mean, like the, there's a good chance because of our surroundings that in many ways you will find a home that in many ways you will actually get the thing that you've been hoping for, that you will get that family that you've always dreamed would be your family, right? Or that you might actually find yourself in the career that you always thought, man, if I could just do that, then I'll be happy. You might get that relationship, or, or maybe you'll, you'll hit that, that green line target thing for your savings account for the retirement. Like, maybe you'll hit that. Maybe you'll hit that target and you'll have that security and you'll be able to live those four years in retirement, I mean, 40 years in retirement with unlimited, re you know, maybe you'll get that. There's a good chance that you'll get that, right? If we just simply play the odds. So what's, what's then the point? If I am in the midst of such a prosperous place, if I am in the midst of a place where I get just gift after gift after gift of my, in my life, if I'm in a place where I've found that person to spend my life with and it's actually going okay, right? Or we've begun to build that, like, if I'm in that place, then what is it that this, how is it that all this applies to me? And I think the important point, even if you get the things that you long for, is for us to realize and to see them for what they really are, that they, in fact, are not actually imperishable and undefiled. Right? That they, in fact, are not going to be uh, ever abiding in a state of perfection. That they may, in fact, fade. The greater reality of this exile sense for us is that even if we find a home in one of those ways, that we don't actually hope in that home. That we don't actually put our stake in that home that we do not found our joy upon that temporary thing. There's some sense that we'll 
be able to enjoy some fulfillment, and yet there's a sense that we won't. And even if we get the gifts of obtaining some of the things that we are pursuing, might we ever be guarded by God's grace to still delight in his work of salvation, knowing that he alone is the one who can bring us home, home. That the things can't do it, but he has done it, and so therefore we find our home in Jesus. Whatever it is, when we find that other home, when those other dreams may happen to still even get fulfilled, maybe God's grace gives us some of those things. Maybe. And that's to be rejoiced in, absolutely. Right? But not to the point where I lose my identity in Christ, where I lose grip of the fact that he has made my heart at home in him. And one of the beautiful things when we really grasp this idea is that these homes that we find, these joys that God gives in our lives, these marriages or careers or fiscal blessings or the actual home we live in, or maybe it's a particular pursuit of a, a certain city or place or uh, country, like if we do happen to get that as our home, may they be for us just a reminder of how much greater our ultimate home truly is, right? If you can sit down in peace at your home, rest on a sofa, kick your feet up and go, ah, might it be that that deep sigh of relief points you to a greater, deeper sigh of relief that is yet to come? A greater, deeper sigh of relief where you will hear the words, it is finished. Welcome home, good and faithful servant. There is truly nothing left for you to do, right? May your relationships, may your job, whatever it is, may it point you to that greater home that God is going to bring and work out with the guaranteed salvation that is yet to come. So there's a chance that you'll get some of the stuff, right? That you'll find that home in some sense. But there's also a good chance that you don't end up obtaining it. There's a good sense or a good chance that those things that you hoped for actually don't end up coming true for you, right? This is one of the great evils of the prosperity gospel that has proliferated in our nation. The promise that if you do X, Y, and Z, God will give you A, B, and C guaranteed. Hogwash. You have no idea what God's going to give you. No idea. Sean and Mindy just celebrated their anniversary. I saw Sean's Instagram post. It just said, man, seven years ago, we were just two kids in love. That's, you know, I don't, we didn't, nothing else, but we loved each other. We had no clue what was ahead. That's why I love it. We're going to marry these two very soon. We're going to marry those two very soon. I love that about standing there on that day with the bride and the groom. And they're just like, that, you know, nothing is better right now than this. If I could just have this person forever. It doesn't matter what else I have. All I need is you, right? Like they say to you, they scream it from the rooftops. We make proclamations and then we send them out into life. And seven years later, just nothing but roses and sunshine. Am I right? I mean, it's just nothing but perfection. The idea that it's going to always be that way, right? It's seeped into us so much so. We cannot, we have no guarantees. We don't know what type of rough road is ahead for us. We just know that it's some type of rough road. 
And if you get on the other side of some sort of idea that, oh, I'm going to end up with this in my life, and it all falls apart, if you don't get that home, if you don't end up with that picture-perfect family, if you don't end up with that enduring marriage, if you end up jumping from job to job to job, if social security starts looking better than a pension, like, if those things become your reality, God has not broken a promise to you. You have not lost your way. Salvation has not seeped through your fingertips. You have simply begun to journey down the road that God has ordained from the beginning of time. And like Peter's words at the beginning, the work of God's salvation is his work of salvation. And he'll hold you no matter these things that you end up going through. So maybe you don't get the home at all. Maybe you don't get that financial security at all. Maybe you don't seem to find a peace in an in a actual house. You labor hard to build that thing, and you get there, and it's finished, and you sit down, and you go, oh, honey, I don't think this is it. I know, right? It's like, duh. It just hits. It may be that God in his grace and absolutely according to his plan won't actually give you that thing. Oh. What do we do then? What do we do then? I had this amazing conversation with my mom the other day. Um, you know, when your husband dies at the 40th anniversary mark instead of the 65th anniversary mark, your life changes. And my mom's looking at apartments, and I'm, you know, she's got this cool little two-bedroom townhouse that Dad renovated before he died. And uh, my parents always had a house full, as long as I can remember growing up. The door was just a swinging door. Neighbors, family, all the gatherings we could have. Bonfires in the fall when the leaves were falling and the crisp air came in from the north. Like our home was a home to so many people. And I imagine my mom back then thinking, you know, it's going to be great one day when I got 12 grandkids. Me and dad are retired and old. We can have all the kids back over for Thanksgiving. You know, we can just fill this house with laughter. Now she's looking at 600 square foot one bedroom apartments with a heated garage below. Minnesota necessary. And I just said, Mom, is this hard? And she goes, well, it's not, it's not what I pictured at all. It's not at all what I pictured. And I said, yeah, I know you didn't. I know you always imagined a house full. You know? And she says, but it's enough. It's what God has brought. And I rejoice. I just thought, man, if I can get there, I'll be all right. Because listen, even if God doesn't get you that thing like you thought you'd get, if it falls apart, if it doesn't endure, if in fact you actually find out that it's not inexhaustible, that it's not unperishable, that it's not unfading, it's actually a gift of God's grace that he's chosen for your life so that the deep abiding home that you have in him can be more precious more treasured and more abiding than anything that this world could ever give you.
there's something stalwart about my mother today. Not a perfect woman. Lord, no. But there's something immovable about her. She's going to live the last 20 years of her life in a way that she never imagined. And she's going to be great. She's going to be right in the hands of Jesus. And listen, this is why it's so important that we don't sell some Christian ideal around here. Listen, we love kids and we love families, but having a marriage and having two and a half kids is not the Christian ideal. If we hold that up as the Christian ideal and we try to shepherd and disciple single men and women who are abiding into their 30s and into their 40s and into their 50s and into their 60s and still never having marriage and still never having families and still never finding a home like that, if we pitch to them that the Christian ideal is that family, then we're going to ruin their life. We don't do that here. That particular sector of job or that particular uh, segment of socioeconomic standing or, or that, that specific neighborhood or, or, or whatever those things are, we don't, we don't do that. Right? Where is Christ? He's in all of us, in all our circumstances, in all of our settings. You should be able to give the assurance of the gospel to a homeless man, the same as a millionaire. It is in Christ and Christ alone. It is God's work to give you this great gift, and it doesn't matter what's in your hand. It doesn't matter what it looks like you've earned or how you've arrived. It doesn't matter if it all crashes down around you, even if it's your fault, even if you're the one that ruins it. I love you, but even if you train wreck your job, right? Even if you're the one in the marriage that cannot seem to get repentance and reconciliation right, and you break it, even if it's you, God's enough. God can redeem whatever is broken. Does it mean he's going to put it all back together? I don't know. But there's something in you that he will work to bring you home. And it doesn't matter what you have or don't have or where you live or don't live. He is giving you a new home. It's talked about in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. We'll go to Hebrews 11 quickly before we wrap up. If you're familiar with the Bible, this is just a couple pages to the left, actually, from where you were at, or scroll backwards. The writer of Hebrews says, this is what faith is, and here's the great faith of our heritage. Right, and he opens up the first several verses of Hebrews 11. We get names like Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. Like, oh, those guys and gals, like... That's what it looks like to have faith. And verse 13 to 16 ties in perfectly with Peter's address to the exiles. It says, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised. 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So the writer of Hebrews puts the date of exile a lot earlier, in fact. He puts it all the way back to Abel. He says exile started at the garden, not in Babylon, in the garden. Even Abraham, even Sarah, even Isaac, even Jacob were exiles. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. All these people, they were seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. If home was the place they left, they would have just gone back. But that wasn't home, the writer says. Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. If he wanted to be home, he could have just turned right back around and went back, but he never did. But as it is, verse 16, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Listen to me. God is not ashamed of you. However that home situation is working out for you, God is not ashamed of you. He's not saying, oh man, <laughs> I'd call you mine if you had that area polished up a little better. You know, I'm running the background check and uh, this, that, that. Can you keep your distance? Right? No. Whatever the frailty, the things that have fallen apart or will fall apart, whatever befalls us, you will not be ashamed. Why? Because he's preparing us for home. Like these heroes in the Hebrews Hall of Faith, who seem to do tremendous things and be a part of such a great picture, they too didn't have their home. They were always longing for something else, something that was yet to come, this desire for a far-off country. And so may we, like them, like these exiles in Asia Minor, like Peter, like the other apostles, may we find our home in Jesus so that no matter what the homelessness that we experience on earth, it won't ruin our souls. It won't take us down. It won't take us out. Because listen, no home can ever truly be a home. So whether we get it or not, the only home we have, the only peace we have, the only multiplying grace that we have is in Jesus and whatever you come to, you're, you're always going to find at the end of that thing a desire for a better country. So listen, live it up, right? Marriage, do it, great. Family, kill it. Work, life, go get it, right? And always know, always know it's pointing to something greater. No matter what you end up with in your hands, there's a greater home. There's a better country. There's an eternal, imperishable, unfading, kept for you 
in heaven inheritance. And Christ gave it to you. Okay? He gave it to you. He worked it. According to God's plan, the Spirit has applied it. It's given to you. When you get a hold of that gift, it changes home, right? It just changes it. So that if you have the home, you know that the home isn't the home. And if you don't have the home, you go, oh, well, the home is not the home. The home is the home. I have it in Christ. Did you follow that? It's in him. Wow. Our true home is in Christ. Let me read this last section. 1 Peter, verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let your joy, whether you have the home or not, let your joy be in Christ, your true home. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your peace, which are multiplied to us. And Lord, we're not so foolish as to think that if we read this passage once and talk about exile for a couple months that we're, we're going to get it from now on. That's, that's not the human way. We know that we're going to fade in and out, that we're going we're to find at times more peace in our home than we should, and then at other times we're going to find that we don't have a home at all. And Throughout the enduring faith that we walk in, Whatever our story is, whatever our story becomes, however the end ends, we can trust, like Peter said in the beginning, that it is according to the plan, the foreknowledge of the Father. So we just rest in your sovereignty for a minute. It's hard sometimes when we don't have the thing that we want, the thing that we feel like would give us peace but thank you that at times you take the thing away so that we might find where our real peace is, that it's actually in you. So we trust your sovereignty, the hill, the veil, the ups, the downs, the ins, the outs, the twists and turns. We trust your sovereignty and that in it you're working in us. At the part that we didn't cover, the, 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 the gold refined by fire, our faith is strengthened. Whether we walk through these times of plenty or times of hardship. And so God, we're, we just recognize we're exiles. We, we don't have a home. Sometimes we look around and we, we look at the culture and we think, surely I'll find my home here. And we find out, ugh, it's not home. Or maybe sometimes we look at at religion or kind of churchiness, and we think, well, if I find my home there, and even some of that gets blurry and screwy, and so we, ah, we think we don't have our home there, or maybe it's financial things or political things or job things. We're prone to just seek a home all over the place, and there, there's just nowhere that we belong. Might we just rest in the fact that we belong with you? so that whatever we do end up with in our hands, we can say like my mom, it's enough. It's what God's chosen, and he is good, and it's for his glory. So come what may, I know it's him. 
God, a lot of us are on the younger side of the story. Would you gird our faith? Would you strengthen our resolve? Would you make us stalwarts? Like oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, driven deep because of your grace so that we might stand whatever comes. And with that statement, we just simply ask for help, that you'd help us. We need it, in Christ's name, amen.